Hi, I'm Phil Moorhart, Senior Editor of American Libraries, the magazine of the American Library Association, and this is the Dewey Decibel Podcast. Life can change fast, and sometimes your health insurance must change to keep up. Certain life changes may mean you can enroll in or change your health insurance plan at any time of year. These changes include losing a job-based health insurance plan, turning 26 and coming off your parents' insurance, getting married or divorced, or having a baby. Take action as soon as your life change happens. Learn more and act now at healthcare.gov. Privacy is a chief concern in our personal and professional lives, especially at this particular time in history. ALA's Choose Privacy Week, which occurred May 1st through 7th, shines a spotlight on privacy issues and concerns every year around this time. But we live in a different world now. COVID-19 has changed how we work and how we live our lives, and it's raised further privacy issues. Today on the Dewey Decibel Podcast, we talk privacy in this new world of ours. First, I speak with Becky Yos, a library data privacy consultant with LDH Consulting Services, about Zoom bombing, what it is, who it targets, and how to stop it. Next, I speak with Peter McCracken, electronic resources librarian at Cornell University, about a privacy services program that they've instituted in regards to vendor use of patron data. But first, a word from a sponsor. Do you want to help the uninsured members of your community enroll in health insurance? The Public Library Association's Libraries Connecting You to Coverage Initiative has a wealth of health insurance resources that address common coverage questions, plus training materials for library staff, communication assets, and more. Your staff will be more confident and prepared to assist patrons with enrolling in health insurance during the Affordable Care Act's next open enrollment period and throughout the year. Libraries Connecting You to Coverage Become a champion of coverage at your library. Visit ala.org pla for more information. That's ala.org pla. Video conferencing has exploded these past few months, with so many of us sheltered in place and working from home. And Zoom has become the industry standard platform of use. And along with this ubiquity, unfortunately, comes malfeasance in the form of Zoom bombing. That's when uninvited guests crash and disrupt a video chat, often with racial slurs and profanity. I spoke with Becky Yos, a library data privacy consultant with LDH Consulting Services and a privacy expert, about this phenomenon and how Zoom users can prevent it from happening. Um, now, Zoom bombing, it's, it's been in the news a lot lately, um, but is this a new phenomenon, or is this something that's, that we're, we're hearing a lot more about because so, much, so many of us are using the platform for, for work and other, uh, and other purposes? Zoom has had these vulnerabilities for quite a while now. It's just, as you mentioned, a lot of people are using Zoom nowadays due to the pandemic and working from home, offering virtual programs, teaching sessions, and whatnot. So Zoom bombing, the instances of Zoom bombing has risen 
exponentially because the use of Zoom overall has increased exponentially. And how exactly is this happening? How how are um, these people accessing people's um, well, I think what many people think of their private conversations, how, how is this actually happening? There are a few ways that people are being Zoom bombed. The most documented case is people posting Zoom meeting information. So, for example, if they're using their personal chat room URL to hold a meeting and they post that online and if they don't require a password, or if they don't have the waiting room enabled, so when people join that meeting, the hosts have to let them in before they join the meeting proper, that makes that particular meeting open for anyone to join. And that could be random strangers and also your Zoom bombers. Now, there are instances where, for example, university and high school classes are getting Zoom bombed because there are sites out there, there are forum discussion threads asking students, hey, do you want your class to be Zoom bombed? Give us your information right here. And so even if you password protect your Zoom meeting, it could be Zoom bombed just on the reason because one of your students decided to apply, uh, apply to reply to these uh, threads. And that's how a Zoom bomber can get their foot in the door. And who who exactly is a, a Zoom bomber? Is are there any type of, is there any information about that? Who's actually doing this, and and who um, are they targeting? So I want to address who is being targeted first, and mm-hmm. it's mainly those who already receive their fair share of online harassment or are targets of organized harassment campaigns that includes women, minorities, LGBTQIA+, um, religious minorities, uh, disabled populations, various other sections of the population that would otherwise be, again, um, subject to harassment either in the physical world or the online world. And the people who are doing this, it is a mixed bag. Um, Zoom is very easy to use. That's one of the reasons why Zoom has become very popular because you have the other telecom, you have the other web conferencing software packages like WebEx, GoToMeeting, Adobe Connect. They are not very user friendly. They do the job, but people don't like using them because the user experience with these products are not very seamless. It's not frictionless. Zoom's user experience has allowed people to use Zoom in such a way that there's not as a steep of a learning curve with other video conferencing software. And so one type of person who might be dabbling in Zoom bombing are the people who are curious as to making disruptions. They're not in it for... Um, to make a habit of it, they just want to cause some grief and then move on with their lives. However, there is a subsection of Zoom bombers that are serial harassers, and Zoom bombing is just yet another tool in that toolbox to make people's lives miserable. 
again, it's a very easy platform to use, and it's a very easy one to work around to work around minimal security um, barriers if the person hosting that meeting doesn't have various security and privacy settings set up. Yes, something I've been curious about since it's called Zoom bombing. I've always been curious that is has it is it just limited to Zoom? Are there are there any instances of other uh platforms similar to Zoom experiencing such as this? Again, it goes back to the ease of Zoom and how it's easy to create a meeting and how easy it is to join a meeting. Uh, for example, if you do um, Cisco WebEx, if you try to join a meeting, there are additional steps to get into that meeting. And even though you can eventually get to that meeting, those additional steps, if you if you leave your meeting open, if you don't have any other protections, um, just having those additional steps acts as a low-level deterrent for those folks who weren't really motivated to cause grief for that meeting. So for other platforms, it can be possible. However, again, since Zoom is the one being used by the majority of people in the last few months, um, the focus has been on Zoom. And how has has Zoom reacted to all this? Have they have they put any preventative or or reactive measures in place? Again, it's a mixed bag with the Zoom company because they knew of these vulnerabilities for months, and they were very slow to react. And actually, the Zoom CEO did come out to say that they were they were wrong. They made mistakes in terms of how they approached privacy with their product. So a few things that Zoom did, if you're using the desktop desktop client, there's been a desktop client update that automatically defaults all created meetings to have password protection as well as enabling waiting rooms by default. They've also come up with guides for users to secure their meetings. There are a lot of settings that you need to change. And even though the guides are there, um, some people might still have a little bit of trouble going through the settings on their account, or even if they are not the administrator for that account. So for example, if you're working with an IT department or through a university department that's is the group administrator for the Zoom account, um, there needs to be some back and forth in making sure those settings are changed the way they're supposed to be changed. Zoom has also purchased a, uh, an encryption company called Keybase because another security concern, um, security and privacy concern with Zoom was that the end-to-end -end encryption that Zoom said that they had wasn't true end-to-end -end encryption. So Zoom is taking steps towards securing their product, not only from Zoom bombing, but also from various other privacy and security risks. Now, are all these changes going to help out in the end? That's still early, still fairly early to tell. So we will see in the coming months if uh, Zoom's changes helps mitigate some of these Zoom bombing risks.
Yeah, this this um, it brings it, it brings to mind some, some I think a larger question is just how private, how much privacy can we expect on these video chat platforms? Um, how 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 private are are our conversations on Zoom overall, in your opinion? Uh, you have asked the wrong person if you want to have a reassuring answer. Um, <laughs> unless your voice chat, unless that connection between you and the other person is end-to-end encrypted. Now, when I say end-to-end encryption, um, I am indicating that you are holding the encryption key for that data being transported between you and the conversation person. The company does not have that key to find out what you're discussing. So that was what was going on with Zoom's flawed end-to-end encryption. They held the encryption key, which meant that your encrypted chat wasn't really private because they can decrypt and see or hear what you're chatting. Anytime you involve a third-party product into your communications, there is always the chance, um, even though there are some products that do take encryption and security and privacy very seriously, there's that always that small chance that there might be a leak or breach. But, again, um, it depends on your threat modeling. It depends on how sensitive that information being transferred between you and the other person is. Even if you don't have this, even if you don't have the data in the in the chat itself, so you don't have the content, you have to deal with the metadata. So, what metadata is being collected? Um, does the company know who you chatted with? Do they have details about location, IP address? can give away location, for example, if you're not using a VPN. Um, So the metadata from these chats themselves can indicate, with a certain amount of accuracy, um, the content of your conversation. So how private they are, uh, if you're using something that is not um, anywhere near have the settings for privacy, have settings for security, not even near encryption or decent encryption, I would count that as having a conversation in the public space with the other person. If you get true end-to-end encryption, um, then it would be similar to talking in a room, but there's always the possibility of someone overhearing if you talk loud enough or a person passes by. So there is always that small chance, but the more protections you have, um, the more protections you have available, the better chance that your conversation will stay private. Uh, now, now speaking of protections, um, should a listener, one of our listeners, uh, be using Zoom and a Zoom bomb should occur? Um, what, I guess this is a two-part question, like what should they do immediately should, if it should happen during one of the sessions, and how can they prevent something like this from happening moving forward. All right, so if you're in the unfortunate situation where you have a Zoom bomb occurring, um, it depends on what permissions you have. Uh, If you're just a viewer in that room, all you can do at that point is hope that the host addresses and kicks out that particular person who's doing the Zoom bombing. Hosts 
you have the option to remove individual users from the room. There's also a setting in Zoom that blocks a person who was kicked out from re-entering the room again. So this has to be set up beforehand. Mm -hmm. um, if there are multiple bombers, it might get to the point where you just have to end the meeting, contact the attendees, and then try again. So how can you prevent this? Again, you pro again, this is the going through the settings for each of your meetings, going through your user settings for Zoom. There are a lot of settings that you need to change if you want a very secure Zoom meeting. And the first thing that you need to do is actually behavior-based, is do not publish publicly your Zoom meeting room link. That in itself is inviting trouble. So what you want to do is if you're trying to do a open meeting, a public meeting, have people register before. Again, it's a little friction in that process that might deter some of your lower level, less motivated Zoom bombers. Um, going through the settings, um, you want to limit access to screen sharing, video, virtual backgrounds, file sharing, um, private chats. You want to disable those or limit those to host only. When people enter the room, um, you should have the waiting room turned on by default. Um, so when people enter the meeting itself, make sure that all participants are muted on entry. And once you have everyone in the room, lock down the meeting once everyone has arrived. That will prevent people coming in randomly and then Zoom bombing your meeting. Life can change fast, and sometimes your health insurance must change to keep up. Certain life changes may mean you can enroll in or change your health insurance plan at any time of year. These changes can include losing a job-based health insurance plan, turning 26 and coming off your parents' insurance, getting married or divorced, or having a baby. Take action as soon as your life change happens. Learn more and act now at healthcare.gov. Despite all of our best efforts to ensure patron privacy, we can't do so 100% of the time, especially when it comes to patron information gathered by third-party vendors of e-resources, for example. But libraries are making headways to improve that, including Cornell University Library, which has instituted a multifaceted privacy campaign. I spoke with Peter McCracken, electronic resources librarian at Cornell, about the program and how the pandemic has amplified privacy concerns. Now this uh, privacy service that Cornell Library has in, uh, implemented, can you uh, tell us a bit more about that? What exactly does it entail? Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, first, it's really a collection of different services. It's a combination of some things that we've been doing a, a little bit here and there for a while, some things that we've been expanding, and then so, uh, some things that we're advertising a bit more, and then some ideas we have for the future. So one aspect is what we've been calling digital privacy literacy, you know, really helping students, faculty, and staff understand how privacy works online and how they could be harmed through a lack of privacy. Another is licensing for privacy or considering privacy in our negotiations with vendors, like how do we um, 
can we push back on various issues that they have that we feel have a negative impact on patient privacy. Then we have a unit on privacy risks consultations, that is helping people do highly sensitive research safely and do it carefully, find ways of protecting them when they're doing research that could have a true negative impact on them as an individual. And then there's the aspect of public computing, which is a, um, a, a simpler, in a sense, version of that, where we just say, you know, we encourage patrons to, uh, to do research on controversial subjects on library-owned computers, say, rather than their own personal computer. If they're going to be researching terrorism as they're working on an article, maybe they should not be using their own computer where all of those search, uh, the search history will, will appear on their computer. Maybe they should just use a library computer. Now, right now, that's not very, uh, that's not really possible, but uh, when we are back uh, on campus and, and when we started this before we all had to head home and start working from home, uh, that's been, that was one of a, some of the couple of different things that we were focusing on. Oh, yeah. Uh, one, one aspect of the, um, of, of the services that you're offering is, is some of the vendor monitoring that, that you're, you're, you're looking into doing. And uh, I guess one of my questions is, is uh, why would a vendor need to collect patient data? What's, what type of data would they be collecting and what, what would they be doing with it? Why would they be doing this at all? So we have this idea that we have not yet put into um, practice of helping our patrons understand what the vendor may do with the data they collect from the patron. And we want to, we want it to both be simple and complex. We want it to have a sort of a red, yellow, green light approach so that someone, before they connect to that, that site, understand, get a sense at least of, of what the vendor may do with the individual's personal data. On the back end of it, though, we want to be more complex. We want to have a better understanding of, of uh, basically a, a scoring system, perhaps, of various specific items that we have uh, understood to be the case of how the vendor um, manages information in those cases. Now, your follow-up question up. about why they do that is, is a very good one, and it highlights the differences among the various vendors we work with. Some of our vendors wants to ensure that the people who are accessing the resources that they offer are affiliated with the subscribing institution. That's all they want to do. They want to make sure that someone is paying for access, and that is, is understandable and that's appropriate. Those vendors are the generally, those are the traditional library vendors that we think of, and they recognize that, or at least they, they see, they believe that uh, the library is their primary revenue source. There are other vendors, however, who see the, the patron or the user as the primary revenue source, that is, information that they collect about that patron or about that user when they're, uh, when they're logging in. And so these, these uh, vendors and content providers are looking to collect a whole lot of information about the individual and then use that and monetize that in different ways. And that's what we want to warn our patrons about before they connect. Now, has this, um, I know you have some, something that's uh, in, in the works, um, but have you uh, had to reevaluate any of your um, relationships with vendors or any subscriptions as a result of some of the, the privacy work that you're doing? Uh, we have through the years. Uh, one example is uh, Safari, the 
uh, ebook uh, provider of a lot of um, a lot. It's a you know a collection of ebooks, and uh, for a variety of reasons, but privacy being being one of them, uh, we felt this wasn't something that you know they were not willing to budge. They they had their position, and we had ours, and we decided that we were not willing to pay the amount of money that they were asking uh, when they were going to behave in the way that they were behaving, where they collected a lot of information about patrons. Separately, after that, we learned that I learned that um, they had a tendency to collect that patron information, um, sign people up for newsletters without notifying them. I mean, there have been other instances that I've gone through and I've been testing uh, access as an electronic resources librarian where I was forced to sign up for newsletters and all of this stuff. And I didn't like it, but I knew I was doing it. But um, in Safari's case, unfortunately, they were doing that without uh, people knowing about it. And then they'd come back to the library and say, hey, why are you doing that? And, and the library wasn't doing it at all. Now, uh, we, so we lost access, of course, to that collection, and we bought a couple of the individual titles that we had previously been, you know, we've been leasing a collection of them. And um, for the most part, that has worked out okay for us. Um, have you seen any changes in any privacy practices um, as a result of your work or just or any other type of privacy work from institutions? Uh, a lot of libraries, I think primarily primarily led by uh, Aaron Berman um, in the Alameda County system, uh, pushed back quite hard on LinkedIn Learning. Uh, in, their, in their original plan, when they, they transitioned from lynda.com to uh, LinkedIn Learning, and they were going to require that every library customer uh, create an account before going in. And it was thanks to the work that um, Aaron did through the ALA, through the ALA Committee on um, Intellectual Freedom, I believe, but um, pushed back and got them to change that. So that's not something that Cornell was at all involved in. Uh, we do have access to that database, but we don't acquire it. It's not paid for through the library. The library doesn't manage that. It's done on an, on an institutional level. Uh, so there's one example of where other libraries pushed back and, and got a, a really good response. Now, have you um, – what's the response been from patrons? Have you heard anything – any response from patrons about uh, any of the privacy services that you're offering? Uh, what's – What's the, what are their thoughts on all this? Uh, I haven't had a lot of interaction with patrons. I mean, we launched this in <laughs> in, in late January, and of course, the, the world kind of turned upside down not long after that. And yeah. in fact, what we had hoped to do was a um, fairly quiet launch, just a way of starting to uh, publicize a few of these things. Now, we do have a, a um, one of our librarians who teaches a lot of courses on this. Uh, to uh, patrons, and I think that she's gotten some very good uh, feedback from them. Uh, as a generally in technical services these days, I haven't had the opportunity to hear uh, about a whole lot of feedback from that. And then, of course, we've been it's been what eight weeks since we've been um, on campus. So yeah. Uh, now um, you you mentioned you know the eight weeks of being off. Um, this uh, the pandemic. It's it's. It's changed everything, and it, it's has it impacted uh, the privacy services at all? Um, that anything that you're working on, since patrons are using these vendors, play more often to access online materials. Yeah, there are two ways that I would uh, say that there, uh, it's impacted. That one is that you know. Um, you can only do so many things at a time, and so when it became clear that we had to really focus on ensuring that everything as, 
was working as well as possible from home, uh, we have we have dialed back a bit of our work on the on the um, privacy issues just because that's been we've been other had other things we need to focus on. But that being said, uh, you know our primary method of of access is through IP authentication, where um, a vendor knows that the person using the uh, computer uh, that is trying to access it is on our campus. And now many of them are accessing from off campus, and so there may be other ways of connecting other than IP authentication, such as a single sign-on or something like that. So, um, and certainly many more of them uh, are going through those systems to identify themselves. So in a way it becomes more important because it is a bit easier to identify the individual at the other end of the system when they cannot use a a library managed laptop or desktop and they must use their own machine through the library's proxy server or some other authentication system. That wraps another episode of the Dewey Decimal Podcast. Many thanks to Becky Yos and Peter McCracken for joining us today. As always, if you'd like to continue the conversation at all, join us on Facebook and Twitter, or you can reach out to me at deweydecimal at ala.org. We want to hear from you. As always, I'm Phil Morehart, Senior Editor of American Libraries, and this is the Dewey Decimal Podcast. See you next month.